Section 7 of Omega, The Last Days of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Omega, The Last Days of the World by Camille Flammarion, Part 1, Chapter 6. Part 1. It is now time to pause amid the eventful scenes through which we are passing in order to consider this new fear of the end of the world with others which have preceded it and to pass rapidly in review the remarkable history of this idea which has reappeared again and again in the past at the time of which we are speaking this subject was the sole theme of conversation in every land and in every tongue as to the dogma credo resurrectionium carnis the addresses of the fathers of the church before the council assembled in the sistine chapel at rome were on the whole in accord with the opinion expressed by the cardinal archbishop of paris the clause et vitam aeternum was tacitly ignored in view of the possible discoveries of astronomy and psychology these addresses epitomized as it were the history of the doctrine of the end of the world as held by the christian church in all ages this history is interesting for it is also the history of the human mind face to face with its own destiny and we believe it of sufficient importance to devote to it a separate chapter for the time being therefore we abandon our role as the chronicler of the twenty-fourth century and return to our own times in order to consider this doctrine from an historical point of view the existence of a profound and tenacious faith is as old as the centuries and is a notable fact that all religions irrespective of christian dogma have opened the same door from this mortal life upon the unknown which lies beyond it it is the door of the divine comedy of dante although the conceptions of paradise hell and purgatory peculiar to the christian church are not universal zoroaster and the zendavesta taught that the world would perish by fire the same idea is found in the epistle of saint peter it seems that the traditions of noah and the deucalion according to which the first great disaster to humanity came by flood indicated that the second great disaster would be of an exactly opposite character the apostles peter and paul died probably in the year sixty four during the horrible slaughter ordered by nero after the burning of rome which had been fired at his command and whose destruction he attributed to the christians in order that he might have a pretext for new persecutions st john wrote the apocalypse in the year sixty nine the reign of nero was a bloody one and martyrdom seemed to be the natural consequence of a virtuous life prodigies appeared on every hand there were comets falling stars eclipses showers of blood monsters earthquakes famines pestilences and above all there was the jewish war and the destruction of jerusalem never perhaps were so many horrors so much cruelty and madness so many catastrophes crowded into so short a period as in the years sixty four to sixty nine a d the little church of christ was apparently dispersed it was impossible to remain in jerusalem the horrors of the reign of terror of seventeen ninety three 
and of the commune of 1871 were as nothing in comparison with those of the Jewish Civil War. The family of Jesus was obliged to leave the holy city and to seek safety in flight. False prophets appeared, thus verifying former prophecies. Vesuvius was preparing the terrible eruption of the year 79, and already in 63 Pompeii had been destroyed by an earthquake. There was every indication that the end of the world was at hand. Nothing was wanting. The apocalypse announced it. But a calm followed the storm. The terrible Jewish war came to an end. Nero fell before Galba, under Vespasian and Titus. Peace, 71, succeeded war, and the end of the world was not yet. Once more it became necessary to interpret anew the world of the evangelists. The coming of Christ was put off until after the fall of the Roman Empire, and thus considerable margin was given to the commentator. A firm belief in a final and even an imminent catastrophe persisted, but it was couched in vague terms which robbed the spirit as well as the letter of the prophecy of all precision. Still, the conviction remained. St. Augustine devotes the twentieth book of the City of God, 426, to the regeneration of the world, the resurrection, the last judgment, and the new Jerusalem. In the twenty-first book, he describes the everlasting torments of hell-fire. A witness to the fall of Rome and the Empire, the Bishop of Carthage, believed these events to be the first act of the drama. But the reign of God was to continue a thousand years before the coming of Satan. St. Gregory, the Bishop of Tours, 573, the first historian of the Franks, began his history as follows. As I am about to relate the wars of the kings with hostile nations, I feel impelled to declare my belief. The terror with which men await the end of the world decides me to chronicle the years already past, that thus one may know exactly how many have elapsed since the beginning of the world. This tradition was perpetuated from year to year and from century to century, notwithstanding that nature failed to confirm it. Every catastrophe, earthquake, epidemic, famine, and flood every phenomenon eclipse comet storm sudden darkness and tempest was looked upon as the forerunner and herald of the final cataclysm trembling like leaves in the blast the faithful awaited the coming judgment and preachers successfully worked upon this dread apprehension so deeply rooted in every heart but as generation after generation passed it became necessary to define again the widespread tradition, and about this time the idea of a millennium took form in the minds of commentators. There were many sects which believed that Christ would reign with the saints a thousand years before the day of judgment. St. Arenas, St. Papias, and St. Supplicus Severus shared this belief, which acquired an exaggerated and sensual form in the minds of many who looked forward to a day of general rejoicing for the elect and the reign of pleasure. St. Jerome and St. Augustine did much to discredit these views, but did not attack the central doctrine of a resurrection. Commentators on the Apocalypse continued to flourish through the somber night of the Middle Ages, and in the tenth century especially the belief gained ground that the year 1000 was to usher in the great change. This conviction of an approaching end of the world 
if not universal, was at least very general. Several charters of the period began with this sentence, Termino mundi appropinquante, the end of the world drawing near. In spite of some exceptions, it seems difficult not to share the opinion of historians, notably of Michaelet, Henry Martin, Giesel, and Duroy, regarding the prevalence of this belief throughout Christendom. Doubtless neither the French monk Gerbert at that time, Pope Sylvester II, nor King Robert of France, regulated their lives by their superstition, but it had nonetheless penetrated the conscience of the faint-hearted, and many a sermon was preached from this text of the Apocalypse. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to his works. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Bernard, a hermit of Thuringia, had taken these very words of revelations as the text of his preaching, and in about the year 960 he publicly announced that the end of the world was at hand. He even fixed the fatal day itself as that on which the Annunciation and Holy Friday should fall on the same day, a coincidence which really occurred in 992. Druthmar, a monk of Corby, prophesied the end of the world for the 24th of March in the year 1000. In many cities popular terror was so great on that day that the people sought refuge in the churches, remaining until midnight, prostrate before the relics of the saints, in order to await there the last trump and to die at the foot of the cross. From this epoch date many gifts to the church. Lands and goods were given to the monasteries. Indeed, an authentic and very curious document is preserved, written in the year 1000 by a certain monk, Raoul Glaber, on whose first pages we find, Satan will soon be unloosed, as prophesied by St. John, the thousand years having been accomplished. It is of these years that we are to speak. The end of the tenth century and the beginning of the eleventh century was a truly strange and fearful period. From 980 to 1040 it seemed as if the angel of death had spread his wings over the world. Famine and pestilence desolated the length and breadth of Europe. There was in the first place the mal des ardents. The flesh of its victims decaying and falling from the bones was consumed as if by fire, and the members themselves were destroyed and fell away. Riches thus afflicted thronged the roads leading to the shrines and besieged the churches, filling them with terrible odors and dying before the relics of the saints. The fearful pest made more than forty thousand victims in Aquitania and devastated the southern portions of France. Then came famine, ravaging a large part of Christendom. Of the seventy-three years between 987 and 1060, forty-eight were years of famine and pestilence. The invasion of the Huns, between 910 and 945, revived the horrors of Attila, and the soil was so laid waste by wars between domains and provinces that it ceased to be cultivated. For three years rain fell continuously. It was impossible either to sow or to reap. 
the earth became barren and was abandoned the price of a mood of wheat writes raoul Gaber, rose to sixty gold sous the rich waxed thin and pale the poor gnawed the roots of trees and many were in such extremity as to devour human flesh the strong fell upon the weak in the public highways tore them in pieces and roasted them for food children were enticed by an egg or some fruit into byways where they were devoured this frenzy of hunger was such that the beast was safer than man famished children killed their parents and mothers feasted upon their children one person exposed human flesh for sale in the marketplace of Tournus as if it were a staple article of food he did not deny the fact and was burned at the stake another stealing this flesh by night from the spot where it had been buried was also burned alive this testimony is that of one who lived at the time and in many cases was an eyewitness to what he relates on every side people were perishing of hunger and did not scruple to eat reptiles unclean animals and even human flesh in the depths of the forest of macon in the vicinity of a church dedicated to saint john a wretch had built a hut in which he strangled pilgrims and wayfarers one day a traveler entering the hut with his wife to seek rest saw in a corner the heads of men women and children attempting to fly they were prevented by their host they succeeded however in escaping and on reaching macon related what they had seen soldiers were sent to the bloody spot where they counted forty-eight human heads the murderer was dragged to the town and burned alive the hut and the ashes of the funeral pile were seen by raoul glaber so numerous were the corpses that burial was impossible and disease followed close upon famine hordes of wolves preyed upon the unburied never before had such misery been known war and pillage were the universal rule but these scourges from heaven made men somewhat more reasonable the bishops came together and it was agreed to establish a truce for four days of each week from wednesday night to monday morning this was known as the truce of god it is not strange that the end of so miserable a world was both the hope and the terror of this mournful period the year one thousand however passed like its predecessors and the world continued to exist were the prophets wrong again or did the thousand years of christendom point to the year ten thirty three the world waited and hoped in that very year occurred a total eclipse of the sun the great source of light became saffron colored gazing into each other's faces men saw that they were pale as death every object presented a livid appearance stupor seized upon every heart and a general catastrophe was expected but the end of the world was not yet it was to this critical period that we owe the construction of the magnificent cathedrals which have survived the ravages of time and excited the wonder of centuries immense wealth had been lavished upon the clergy and their riches increased by donations and inheritance a new era seemed to be at hand after the year one thousand continues raoul glaber the holy basilicas throughout the world were entirely renovated especially in italy and gaul although for the most part they were in no need of repair christian nations vied with each other in the erection of magnificent churches 
It seemed as if the entire world, animated by a common impulse, shook off the rags of the past to put on a new garment, and the faithful were not content to rebuild nearly all the Episcopal churches, but also embellished the monasteries dedicated to the various saints, and even the chapels in the smaller villages. The somber year 1000 had followed the vanished centuries into the past, but through what troubled times the church had passed. The popes were the puppets of the rival Saxon emperors and the princes of Lycium. All Christendom was in arms. The crisis had passed, but the problem of the end of the world remained, and credence in this dread event, although uncertain and vague, was fostered by that profound relief in the devil and in prodigies which was yet to endure for centuries in the popular mind. The final scene of the Last Judgment was sculptured over the portals of every cathedral, and on entering the sanctuary of the church, one passed under the balance of the archangel, on whose left ride the bodies of the devils and the damned, delivered over to the eternal flames of hell. But the idea that the world was to end was not confined to the church. In the twelfth century, astrologers terrified Europe by the announcement of a conjunction of all the planets in the constellation of the scales. This conjunction indeed occurred, for on September 15th all the planets were found between the 180th and 190th degrees of longitude. But the end of the world did not come. The celebrated alchemist Arnold de Villeneuve foretold it again for the year 1335. In 1405, under Charles VI, an eclipse of the sun occurring on June 16th produced a general panic, which is chronicled by Juvenal of the Ursuline Order. It is a pitiable sight, he says, to see people taking refuge in the churches as if the world were about to perish. In 1491, St. Vincent Ferrier wrote a treatise entitled De la fin du monde et de la science spirituelle. He allows Christendom as many years of life as there are verses in the Psalter, namely 2,537. Then a German astrologer, one Stoffler, predicted that on February 20th, 1524, a general deluge would result from a conjunction of the planets. He was very generally believed, and the panic was extreme. Properties situated in valleys, along river banks, or near the sea, were sold to the less credulous for a mere nothing. A certain doctor, Oriol of Toulouse, had an ark built for himself, his family, and his friends, and Rodin asserts that he was not the only one who took this precaution. There were few skeptics. The Grand Chancellor of Charles V sought the advice of Pierre Motter, who told him that the event would not be as fatal as was feared, but that the conjunction of the planets would doubtless occasion grave disasters. The fatal day arrived, and never had the month of February been so dry. But this did not prevent new predictions for the year 1532 by the astrologer of the Elector of Brandenburg, Jean Carrion, and again for the year 1584 by the astrologer Cyprian Leowitz. It was again a question of deluge due to planetary conjunctions. The terror of the populace, writes a contemporary, Louis Guyon, was extreme, and the churches could not hold the multitudes which fled to them for refuge. Many made their wills without stopping to think that this availed little if the world was really to perish. Others donated their goods to the clergy, 
in the hope that their prayers would put off the day of judgment. In 1588, there was another astrological prediction, couched in apocalyptic language as follows. The eighth year, following the 1580th anniversary of the birth of Christ, will be a year of prodigies and terror. If in this terrible year the globe be not dissolved in dust, and the land and the sea be not destroyed, every kingdom will be overthrown, and humanity will travail in pain. As might be expected, the celebrated soothsayer Nostradamus is found among these prophets of evil. In his book of rhymed prophecies, entitled Centuries, we find the following quatrain which excited much speculation. Quan Giorgio diu crucifera, cue mare le resuscitera, et cue Saint Jean le portera, la fin du monde arrivera. The meaning of which is that when Easter falls on the 25th of April, St. Mark's Day, Holy Friday will fall on the 23rd, St. George's Day, and Corpus Christi on the 24th of June, St. John's Day, and the end of the world will come. This verse was not without malice, for at this time Nostradamus died in 1556. The calendar had not been reformed. This was not done until 1582, and it was impossible for Easter to fall on the 25th of April. In the 16th century, the 25th of April corresponded to the 15th. The day following, November 4, 1582, was called the 15th. After the introduction of the Gregorian calendar, Easter might fall on the 25th of April, its latest possible date, and this was the case in 1666, 1734, 1886, and it will be again in 1942, 2038, 2190, etc. The end of the world, however, not being a necessary consequence of this coincidence. Planetary conjunctions, eclipses, and comets were alike the basis for prophecies of evil. Among the comets recorded in history, we may mention as the most remarkable, from this point of view, that of William the Conqueror, which appeared in 1066, and which is pictured on the tapestry of Queen Matilda at Bayeux. That of 1264, which it is said, disappeared the very day of the death of Pope Urban IV. That of 1327, one of the largest and most imposing ever seen, which presaged the death of Frederick, King of Sicily. That of 1399, which Juvenal, the Ursuline, described as the harbinger of coming evil. That of 1402, to which was ascribed the death of Juan Galeazio Visconti, Duke of Milan. That of 1456, which filled all Christendom with terror under Pope Calixtus the third during the war with the turks and which is associated with a history of the angelus and that of fourteen seventy two which preceded the death of the brother of louis the eleventh there were others also associated like the preceding with catastrophes and wars and especially with the dreaded last hours of the race that of fifteen twenty seven is described by ambrose pare and by simon Golart as formed of severed heads, poniards, and bloody clouds. The comet of 1531 was thought to herald the death of Louis of Savoy, mother of Francis I, and this princess shared the popular superstition in reference to evil stars. Behold, she exclaimed from her bed, 
on perceiving the comet through the window. Behold an omen which is not given to one of low degree. God sends it as a warning to us. Let us prepare to meet death. Three days after, she died. But the famous comet of Charles V, appearing in 1556, was perhaps the most memorable of all. It had been identified as the comet of 1264, and its return was announced for 1848, but it did not reappear. The comets of 1577, 1607, 1652, and 1665 were the subjects of endless commentaries forming a library by themselves. At the last of these, Alfonso VI, King of Portugal, angrily discharged his pistol with a most grotesque defiance. Pierre Petit, by order of Louis the Fourteenth, published a work designed to counteract the foolish and political apprehensions excited by comets. This illustrious king desired to be without a rival, the only son, ni pluribus impar, and would not admit the supposition that the glory of France could be imperiled even by a celestial phenomenon. One of the greatest comets which ever struck the imagination of men was assuredly the famous comet of 1680 to which Newton devoted so much attention. It issued, said Lemonnier, with a frightful velocity from the depths of space, and seemed falling directly into the sun, and was seen to vanish with an equal velocity. It was visible for four months. It approached quite near to the earth, and Whiston ascribed the deluge to its former appearance. Bale wrote a treatise to prove the absurdity of beliefs founded on these portents. Madame de Sevenet, writing to her cousin, Count de Bussy Rebouton, says we have a comet of enormous size. Its tail is the most beautiful object conceivable. Every person of note is alarmed and believes that heaven, interested in their fate, sends them a warning on this comet. They say that the courtiers of Cardinal Mazarin, who is despaired by his physicians, believe this prodigy is in honor of his passing away, and tell him of the terror with which it has inspired them. He had the sense to laugh at them, and to reply facetiously that the comet did him too much honor. In truth, we ought all to agree with him, for human pride assumes too much when it believes that death is attended by such signs from heaven. We see that comets were gradually losing their prestige. Yet we read in a treatise of the astronomer Bernelli this singular remark. If the head of the comet be not a visible sign of the anger of God, the tale may well be. Fear of the end of the world was reawakened by the appearance of comets in 1773. A great panic spread throughout Europe, and Paris itself was alarmed. Here is an extract from the memoirs of Bachemont, accessible to every reader. May 6, 1773. In the last public meeting of the Academy of Sciences, M. D. Lalande was to read by far the most interesting paper of all. This, however, he was not able to do for lack of time. It concerned the comets which, by approaching the earth, may cause revolutions and dealt especially with that one whose return is expected in eighteen years. But although he affirmed that it was not one of those which would harm the earth, and that, moreover, he had observed that one could not fix with any exactness the order of such occurrences, there exists nevertheless a very general anxiety. May ninth, 
the cabinet of m d leland is filled with the curious who come to question him concerning the above memoir and in order to reassure those who have been alarmed by the exaggerated rumors circulated about it he will doubtless be forced to make it public the excitement has been so great that some ignorant fanatics have besought the archbishop to institute prayers for forty hours in order to avert the deluge which menaces us and this prelate would have authorized these prayers had not the academy shown him the ridicule which such a step would produce may fourteenth the memoir of m d leland has appeared he says that it is his opinion that of the sixty known comets eight by their near approach to the earth might produce a pressure such that the sea would leave its bed and cover a part of the world in time the excitement died away the fear of comets assumed a new form they were no longer regarded as indications of the anger of god but their collision with the earth was discussed from a scientific point of view and these collisions were not considered free of danger at the close of the last century the place stated his views on this question in the forcible language which we have quoted in chapter two in this century predictions concerning the end of the world have several times been associated with the appearance of comets it was announced that the comet of biela for example would intersect the earth's orbit on october twenty ninth eighteen thirty two which it did as predicted there was great excitement once more the end of things was declared at hand humanity was threatened what was going to happen the orbit that is to say the path of the earth had been confounded with the earth itself the latter was not to reach that point of its orbit traversed by the comet until november thirtieth more than a month after the comet's passage and the latter was at no time to be within twenty million leagues of us once more we got off with a fright it was the same in eighteen fifty seven some prophet of ill omen had declared that the famous comet of charles v whose periodic time was thought to be three centuries would return on the thirteenth of june of that year more than one timid soul was rendered anxious and the confessionals of paris were more than usually crowded with penitents another prediction was made public in eighteen seventy two in the name of an astronomer who however was not responsible for it m plantamore director of the geneva observatory end of chapter six part one